Welcome to They Live By Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I am joined as always by my co-hosts, Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. How are you doing today, guys? It's cold and snowing, and I hate it. (laughs) Uh, It's cold here, probably not as cold as you. It's definitely not snowing. I don't remember the last time I saw snow in Ireland, but... uh... I'll send you some pictures later. You can be thankful. (laughs) How are you doing, Chris? Oh man, I'm doing well. Thanks. So I think by today or tomorrow, it's Sunday when we're recording this. So either by today or tomorrow, that YouTube video is going to drop. So that's my first time uh, doing a a YouTube uh, video talking about movies. That was a trip. Yeah, sounds like it's going to be fun. I can't wait to watch it when it does come out. Yeah, it was fun. But no, I think think overall things are well here. Um, No, all all good. What's uh, sorry? Sorry again, Adam, about the Raiders. I know uh, it's always hard. Playoff season's always hard. Yeah, well, look, we went down swinging. It's not like we got blown out like certain New England teams. So, <laughs> you know, Ooh, we went, we, we went, we yeah. went down swinging. You know, last throw of the game, it came down to, you know, it's it's better than we've done the last six years or so. So, you know, it's something to build I, on. I won't keep us on football, but I did joke last night. I was like, you know, I bet Belichick is purposely making it worse than 28-3. So he can sit there and say, Mac Jones did it. Mac Jones is better than Brady. (laughs) This is the right decision. (laughs) That would have been a truly amazing comeback if that had been the case. Um, Right, so this is, as you can tell by the title, this is a a Hitchcock special. So our film club film um, from the voting and it was my turn to do the vote and I I kind of made it be a Hitchcock week because I just chose five (laughs) Hitchcock films and so the first one we're going to talk about is from 1943 it's uh one of his really early sort of masterpieces before he really got going in the 50s um it's a shadow of a doubt uh if you aren't familiar with the film just give you a brief synopsis from IMDb Uh, A teenage girl overjoyed when her favorite uncle comes to visit in their quiet California town slowly begins to suspect that he is in fact the merry widow killer sought by the authorities. Uh, Film stars uh, Joseph Cotton uh, as the as the the, the weird, nicely creepy uncle. Um, Just to sort of get the ball rolling, I, I loved it. Uh, I not my first time seeing it. I saw it about three or four years ago when I was kind of making my way through a, a Hitchcock box set that I have. Um, and I remember liking it then. And I was sort of hoping that it would win when I did the poll. So I was really glad that it did because I wanted an excuse to rewatch it. And I just loved it even more because there was so much stuff that I just like completely forgotten about in terms of its tone and um, just sort of little things that happened throughout the film that I just really didn't catch the first time around that, that really really cemented it as a, as a truly sort of great Hitchcock film. Like I'd probably put this definitely in like my top five Hitchcock. Um, do, do you guys have any sort of immediate reactions to it? Or did you, did you like it? Did you hate it? Did you think it was meh? The, um, um, I really enjoyed it. Um, I, the, this is, I, I think this is the oldest Hitchcock I've watched besides blackmail, which I admittedly wasn't a huge fan of. Um, so I was like, okay, this will be kind of interesting. Cause mostly I think almost everything of his I've watched has been from like the late fifties to the six through the sixties. And I can't remember what he did in the seventies, but I probably watched a few. Um, so this was kind of interesting to watch. And I, my immediate reaction is it reminded me quite a bit of night of the hunter, not as good mm-hmm. as night of the hunter, but it kind of gave me that feel for it. And I, so How's I really, that vibe? yeah, yeah. 
Um, so the world calls this the 521st best movie, which feels fair. Yeah, yeah, that's a decent I could number. I see it a little higher. Yeah. Um, that's right above Les, uh, Le, Vampire, Le Vampire, or whatever, the Les Vampires, the, the uh, serials that's you told cereal. me to watch. Oh, cool. Yeah, and then it's right above 12 Angry Men and then the Quinn Scott So it's in that kind of range, and that, that feels nice. right. Um, you know, this is one of those movies for me that when I watched it, I was like, hey, that was pretty good. And then the more I thought about it, and the discussion we had, which I felt like was one of our most rich discussions we've had in quite some time. Uh, just, I, I think this movie is amazing actually. Like, you know, you, you the family is so pleasant with each other. You, you kind of don't realize how creepy they're being and how off the family is uh, yeah. until you think about it more, it, you know, kind of sit back and think about it or have a discussion about it. And the fact that the, the young Charlie is so enamored by her uncle um, and the, the way that the story plays out as you get to learn more about the uncle Charlie and her, her namesake and the way she reacts to him. It's just all, it's very, like, it's very excellent. Like, I don't really know another way to say it. It's just, I would easily watch this again, like anytime. It's a, it's an easy movie to watch. And I think it has a lot of layers to it, which is, it's always kind of my favorite type of movie. Yeah, I completely agree on that. It is a very easy watch because as we'll probably touch on, there's a lot of comedic moments as well. A lot of sort of maybe a bit sort of deadpan or darkish humor, but it definitely has a lot of subtext going on with it as well. Um, some of it's more obvious, like you mentioned, the sort of strange, almost incestuous dynamic between the two Charlies. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I watched this, I convinced uh, my fiance to watch this with me. Uh, she doesn't really watch a lot of the film club films, but um, we had seen Gaslight last sort of week before last with um, which also is Joseph Cotton or uh, Cotton Eye Joe, as she likes to call him. Um, <laughs> <I> like it. <laughs> uh, so I was like, "Here, this is another Joseph Cotton movie. If you want to watch it with me, I'm going to be watching it." And she was like, "Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll watch this." And uh, like she turned to me like in the middle of the film and goes, "Why are they so weird with one another?" And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, I know, right? It's really creepy. And she's like, is this supposed to be like this? And I'm like, yeah, it's like kind of the point. <laughs> um, yeah. That like they are, they have this sort of sick dynamic. And she was like, it's not one of those incest movies, is it? And I'm like, no, it's not. I promise it's not. Don't worry. <laughs> well, you know, I was sitting there like, this is the 40s. They're not going to go that route. And I just kept thinking, I was like, they could. It wouldn't be much different in the writing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um but obviously, look, when you when you sort of look past that as well, and maybe look a little bit deeper into the subtext, uh, which we'll probably get into, but sort of whole ab- possibility of it being an allegory for, you know, abuse and stuff like that. Um, we can obviously touch on that anyway. Um, but yeah, I, I completely agree with you saying, Chris, it's, it's a very easy film to watch. You know, there, it's, it's not super heady or anything like that, unless you really want to read subtext in which there is plenty to go off. But if you prefer just to watch, you know, a, a murder mystery style Hitchcockian romp, it also has that for you as well. So it really has two, yeah. two sides of this coin. And I think that, I, you know, I, I don't know exactly how many Hitchcock movies I've seen, more than, more than 15. Um, I like Hitchcock when he's being playful with his dialogue. Like, I think he's, you know, he hires very intelligent writers in, in all of his scripts. Like, that's a common, I think he's, 
you know, that's common across almost all of his famous movies. But I really like the ones like um, The Lady Vanishes, like this, where there's just a lot of banter and a lot of clever kind of language. Uh, it, I, I don't know why. It, it seems to me like I, I just kind of sink into like a good Hitchcock movie with that. I love it when he does that. Um, so yeah. this is another there definitely is like a lot of like a lot of jokes, a lot of deadpan, especially from the character Anne, the youngest child of the family. Like she has a lot yeah. of like really good lines, and uh, the child actress whose name I've completely blanked on. Uh, I'll find it now in two secs. Uh, Edna May Wanacott. Um, she she was fantastic. Um, she, yeah. she's probably the smartest character in the whole film, apart from maybe Uncle Charles. Um, but uh, some of the lines she says are just fantastic. I especially love when her when her early sort of in the film when the mother character is like shouting down the phone, and she's like, "You don't have to make up the distance; they can hear you." <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> just like just really sort of nice sort of sharp wit lines that are written for her. Um, and you mentioned about the screenplay, like one of the writers on this um, is, is Thornton Wilder. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. Like he's actually, uh, he, apart from being a screenwriter, he's also quite a celebrated author as well. His most famous book, uh, The Bridge of San Luis Rey. So it would make sense. That there's a lot of sort of novelistic dialogue in this, considering you know his involvement in writing the screenplay. You know, the one element that kind of stuck out to me quite a bit, um, and this might be where he's an author, is there's a, there's kind of a meta sensibility to the entire film because you obviously you have the father and his friend who are talking about mystery novels and the yeah. different ways to kill people. And then you have the uh, young daughter who is, you know, kind of down on that type of literature because she's reading whatever she's reading. I can't even remember. But they, they kind of discuss that a lot. Like the Like, I remember one line in particular where, you know, the friend is like, well, where are you going to leave all the clues? He's like, why would I leave clues? And it, it, I think that's a kind of a, a very funny little meta jab at mysteries, especially with, you know, Hitchcock doing so many of them. Yeah, and I, I love the scenes with those two characters. And I completely, this is one of the things that I'd kind of forgotten about after my first watch, sort of in the meantime, I'd, I'd forgotten about those little scenes. And, and you had mentioned earlier, Chris, about the lady vanishes. And there's a couple of characters in that that have like a little subplot in that film. Uh, I know you probably haven't seen that one, Zach, because you said this is like the earliest, but um, so the lady vanishes basically about a, a train journey. These people are trying to, to, you know, trying to get to various sort of places. And there's a couple of characters that have this kind of subplot throughout the film. They're trying to get back to England in time for a cricket match. And it just cuts to them yeah. every now and again. So they're discussing, you know, what's going on, the cricket and how they're going to get back home for this cricket match. And the scenes with the dad and his friend Herb sort of discussing the different means of how they would murder each other. It's kind of like that in a way. It, it adds nothing to the plot of the film or anything like that. Um, it's just fun little banter, a little subplot that just adds a little extra spice uh, to, to the whole film itself. And, but, with it, but without taking anything away also. Yeah, it's a good way well, to add well, comedy throughout, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And like, I think that like some of these, you know, there's different ways to do filler, right? And I think that Hitchcock does kind of filler better than anybody because he, like even those characters in The Lady Vanishes or, or the, the, the dads here or the, the older men here that are talking about death, like it's still, it still impacts the plot somehow, right? Or like it still is in the story somehow. 
It's not yeah, because the friend ends up being a kind of a big point in the plot, like in the third act. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, which really I thought that was going to tie in, and I was like, it would be kind of funny if they're the ones that kind of like reveal everything through, like this, through this. the mystery. So like, that would have been ridiculous, but yeah, it been kind of funny. Before we talk too much about the ending, it was really interesting. Have y'all ever heard Truffaut interview Hitchcock? No, I've heard there's like a I, I've heard good things about it. I know they have a book called Truffaut Hitchcock, where it's basically just yeah. their conversations and their ideas on films. I know Truffaut was a big fan of Hitchcock, but I haven't actually delved into it myself. It, so they've uh, they recorded it as well. Um, it makes it a little more digestible if you're not the reading type. But um, the, in Shadow of a Doubt, it's interesting in the section here. They start off the first five or so 10 minutes of, of the interview on Shadow of a, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Shadow of a Doubt is Hitchcock being very cynical towards American values and kind of very cynical towards, because there's one point Truffaut's like, well, you know, you, you created monsters in the kids, and he goes, yes because American kids are monsters, like very dry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I just thought it was interesting to hear his take on that. Like, I don't know, it's it's always hard to tell with Hitchcock what's a joke and what's, you know, kind of really his views, but he was really down on, like, like it, it, I I don't want to turn this into like, you know, this is a metaphor for like American values or anything like that but it was just interesting in the beginning of the interviews how much he focused on that and sort of how much he put those characteristics onto the the children and onto the characters of just kind of like gross americans um uh, and and it's it's funny the way you're the way you're talking about that has kind of reminded me of the scene at at the dinner table where uncle charlie is sort of talking about you know the the widows being old fat cows (laughs) yeah which was my, I think that was definitely Joseph Cotton's best, like performance in that movie. Was that part specifically? Yeah, yeah, he was he was very very good in that scene. Just really menacing, just completely sort of changes demeanor. Which um, what you're talking about, Chris? One thing I thought was interesting, and they didn't even need to make a point of it, but I thought it was funny that they did. So they make a point to tell you what year it is because the movie takes place. It comes out in '43. And mm-hmm. they talk about what year the grandparents were born or passed away. I can't remember how many years ago that was. And that puts it at 1941, which feels almost so purposeful because the U.S. won't enter the war until 42. So that's why, it's, you know, it's not it's not they even really needed to touch on. And I don't know if they just felt like they did, but it could be part of the values, too, because this is a pre-war America before they enter World War II. I just kind of thought that was kind of interesting for them to make a point to say it was not 1943 or 42. Well, they would have been writing and making it before they entered the war anyways, right? Even if it came out in 43. Maybe. I know it came out out in 1943, right? Yeah, it came out in 1943. So the odds are, I don't know how quickly they made films back in those days. Probably pretty quick. Um, but That's true. There wouldn't be a whole lot of post-production other than editing it together and doing title cards and stuff. But I suppose in theory... That's going to be more of a Vertigo thing when we get there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I suppose in theory, like there could have been, you know, it could have been filmed during 1942 when the war was still on. Um, 
trying to find out when in 1943 came out. So I can only find the year rather than the actual month. Oh, January 1943. So it definitely would have been filmed during World War II. Okay. Because it came out in January of 1943. So it may as well be a 1942 film yeah. uh, by, by yeah. just over two weeks. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting way of looking at it. And I suppose it explains why there's so many um, male characters obviously during the war years or you know people like charlie or the two sort of weird detectives you know they probably would have been you know gone to war or you know been involved in the effort in some way uh, rather than just lounging around sleepy california suburbs yeah um speaking of the detectives so maybe this is uh a good time i, I thought one of the most brilliant things for me uh in, in the way that hitchcock kind of constructed this film was the way that he did everything in twos or like in a pair. So, you know, obviously there's the two Charlies, which is the most obvious. Mm -hmm. But if you kind of think about this film, like there's two detectives, you know, like there's a scene where she runs in a panic where the young Charlie runs in a panic across the street and hits a cop yeah. and they have an interaction that happens twice. There's two kids outside of Charlie. Um, there's just like throughout the film, there's just, example after example of, of, a, of twos, of pairs. And uh, I didn't necessarily, I don't want to take credit for this idea. I heard it, Truffaut ask Hitchcock about that in the interview. And he said, yeah, it was very intentional. And, and the whole idea was he set up this, this construct where like everything that's happening, you see uh, two things that are similar, but different. And it's just kind of subliminally getting in your mind you know, this, this idea that, that then plays off in the end, I think a little bit without getting too much into it, but like that, I, I love the meticulous detail that he puts into his movies. And I think that's such a great example of how much time and effort he put into making sure that like the majority of the movie happened in pairs. Yeah. I, I, I was reading something about that after I watched the movie and I thought it was really fascinating, especially since, you know, the big rule in film is rule of three. So it's almost interesting to almost do a rule of two because I don't know if I ever really see that too often. Because usually you have the setup, the reminder, and the payoff. But I mean, mm -hmm. this is sort of a different sort of idea. But it's uh, I thought it was kind of interesting to see like this almost dueling pair sort of idea. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm thinking about. It. I'm just sort of thinking of more examples. Like even when they're in the bank, so you have two Charlies. Charlie's father and the bank manager, the two bankers. And then you have the two widows or the two women. Sorry, one's a widow and one's not. The two women walk in then to one's getting money off her husband, who's the manager of the bank. So yeah, yeah. So it, was, it was kind of two. So it's the only time I can think of where there's kind of like three is that scene in the bar with that like really good actress who's just like super, super nonchalant about everything. Um, uh, do you guys remember that when the two yeah, Charlies like yeah. <laughs> get dragged into the bar and you have she reminded me um have you guys seen detour no 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 I need to right see. so the femme fatale and detour she just reminded me of her a lot um just very blunt and to the point and just very dry um i'd recommend that it's a it's it's a very moody film i i liken it to like the film noir cousin mm -hmm. of carnival of souls Okay. Because it was extremely yeah. low budget, but it all works in its favor in terms of its atmosphere. I'll have um, to check it out because I like Cornwall yeah. Souls. Yeah, it's like, like obviously plot wise, they're like nothing alike. It's just, I mean, from the perspective of 
like a lot of the reasons why Carnival of Souls is not theoretically a well-made film actually adds to how good it is. And Detour mm-hmm. is kind of the same, you know, it's shoddiness and, you know, it's sort of uh, on location shooting and stuff. It kind of adds to the atmosphere of the film. Um, sorry, not to go too far off. Well, you know, speaking of the uh, waitress, I really thought she was going to play a bigger part in this, watching it through, because when the ring disappears, I was like, oh, he gave it to her, because that would be a great way to get rid of that ring. It would be. But that ended, didn't end up that, what happened, yeah. but I was like, oh, that would have been, because, you know, she put, makes such a point that she likes that ring. Yeah. That would have been a good way to get rid of it, actually. You're smarter than Uncle Charles. It's official. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, one thing aspect that I think is in the film was there, and I know I think this is a rewatch for both of you. Was there ever a point like that you remember when you first watched that you did kind of like doubt that he it was really him? Like because they do so much with the other guy, you never had that doubt. No. I was just curious. No, no. Oh, well, definitely not this time because obviously I knew, and the first time, no. I think it's pretty up. Like you know, it's very clear that he's a very secretive person, pretty much from the outset, from literally the very first scene when he's dodging the two detectives. Mm. Um, I think, I think they, they kind of Hitchcock sort of slowly tries to unfold this mystery and, you know, makes it drags it out a bit, maybe tries to sow seeds of doubt for personally for me, I don't know, maybe, maybe other people do maybe have those seeds of doubt, but I think from the opening scene where he's dodging the detectives, it's pretty obvious he's somewhat crooked and they never really gave you any other reason to believe why he might be crooked if there was maybe inklings that maybe he was into some other kind of crime, then perhaps then, you know, that doubt could have came in, but nah, pretty much from the outset, I think it's pretty clear. He's a, he's up to okay, no so can, can we do a quick spoiler thing? Yeah. Spoilers. Um, the timestamps will be in the description if you want to skip ahead. So this is my favorite in that, in that construct of twos and pairs, right? This is my favorite pair. Like the fact that there's another suspect who's out on the loose right now that detectives are also chasing. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily Uncle Charlie. It leaves because the movie's called Shadow of a Doubt, right? So the whole the whole premise of the legal system is you can't convict somebody without the evidence there. Like even if things are seeming like they're guilty, right? Yeah. So I think the calling the movie this and then setting it up to where it seems like he's so obviously guilty. I think in a way is kind of brilliant because the whole time you're waiting for that something to come that, that it's going to like show that he's not guilty or something like, you know, cause the young Charlie loves him so much. Uh, he's he, the, the, every, he's a very like enigmatic kind of person. Like everybody he meets in the town kind of likes him. Uh, and so, but he always has this like menacing stance and kind of menacing presence. And so the whole time you're just waiting for him to be innocent almost. Uh, or I was at least, instead of the other way around of trying to figure out who did it. Like almost like it's this huge misunderstanding the whole time. Like something, yeah. Yeah, you're like, okay, yeah, there's, because I mean, one thing I think is really fat, like I was waiting on there to be almost like a reveal in the newspaper. Like they see, like, like you know, Charlie sees the um, Mary Widow killer or whatever, and it turns out there's something else on that paper that he just didn't want them to see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To be on the same page. Exactly. Maybe he was into like money laundering or something. That's why he has all this cash rather than it being stolen inheritance or whatever. Which I just want to note that if he doesn't do anything with that paper, nobody probably notices it. Yeah. And uh, nothing in this movie happens if he just leaves it alone. 
that's probably right. Because I mean, except the, the, for the, the friend talks about the Mary Widow killer later on, so it's not like no one he he can't take it all away from this town. <laughs> so yeah. it's always like, what's the point? <laughs> I suppose you still have the detective show up either way, even yeah. without the paper, and then that would tip off. Which I want to touch on to the detectives because there's one part of the film which you know is really kind of out of place, and that's the kind of like the sort of romantic angle between one of the detectives and the yeah, other Charlie. I'm- yeah, I thought that was a little weird too. Like, yeah. like, like, I was saying again, this is something that that Neve pointed out to me, and she was like, "This dude is like surely like way older than Charlie, isn't she supposed to be like in high school?" And I'm like, "No." They made a point to say that she'd graduated high school. They showed the graduating photo and everything like that. So it's obviously one of these product of its time kind of things where, you know, career men would marry sort of young women to you know rear children or whatever. You know, one of those. One of those things are kind of a product of its time, but I just don't think it added much until I kind of started thinking about the abuse angle. And like the only really thing I could justify it in my mind was, you know, kind of making the point to sort of show Charlie's sort of burgeoning sexuality. That's kind of the only justification I could really give to that subplot because it doesn't really add a whole lot. Like it's not like the detectives arrest him at the end or anything like that they don't even really help Charlie in her investigation. She kind of figures everything out herself for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the only kind of justification I could give is just as a, as a way of sort of highlighting Charlie's sexual burgeoning. That's the only justification I could give to that whole subplot. Speaking of her investigation and you guys might be able to help me. This is the only thing. I don't know if I looked away and missed it. What is the deal with the waltz and why it all connects together? I'm glad I, you I mentioned so this. Lost for that. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned this. I loved it because I'm like, this is so Lynchian. It's like proto Twin Peaksy kind of shit. Um, it didn't make any sense to me. I didn't understand why it was in there. I just knew that I really loved it. It wasn't until I I put it in my sort of conversation on the on the Reddit post for for afterwards, and someone commented. I can't remember who exactly it was. Mentioned that the waltz that they are dancing to is called the Merry Widow Waltz. Oh. So obviously we would not know that in the modern context, but the assumption can be made that people of that time would, it was probably like a famous waltz that people danced to. Um, so people in that time probably got the joke, but it's kind of lost on modern audiences. Well, and there is like this, and this is this is on a decent amount of Hitchcock stuff, like this almost supernatural element. And I think that was yeah. just common in a lot of things where, you know, the, this telepathy thing where, you know, she does just happen to go want to write to her Uncle Charlie right when he's coming into town and stuff like that. And I didn't know if it was supposed to kind of tie into that, like that synchronization almost. Yeah. And that's that that could explain, you know, why she's sort of having this wall stuck in her head, because subconsciously there's the idea that maybe telepathically she knows that he is the Merry Widow killer. And that's why the Merry Widow waltz is kind of in her head and why she's sort of dreaming about it. Um, it's it's not made explicit, which I think is kind of a good thing. Um, it would have it would have probably hurt the film if it did try and go down a supernatural angle. The yeah, fact that they yeah. kept it vague, uh, you know, and, and ambiguous adds to it. Um, but because that just, explains why he gets upset, like he pours the drink so she doesn't say what the name of it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that that clears up a lot because that was one I was like, did I just miss something when I was watching this? Yeah, <laughs> no, for sure. I, I thought it was super weird as well. And I, I I liked it for how weird it was. I just thought it was just like, like I said, like kind of proto-Lynchian sort of adding this kind of weird little recurring imagery, dream imagery into the film for no real 
logical reason. But obviously now it turns out there is a, a logical reason. Um, is this in his filmography? I'm just checking really quick. It's what pretty like right after? it's pretty like mid. So this is like after he's been in America, he would have made Rebecca foreign uh, foreign correspondent. So this is kind of as he got going in America, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, oh, it's after Thirty Nine Steps and Sabotage. Okay, and then it's yeah. Lady Vanishes. Rebecca. Yep. For, yep. 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 Saboteur right before this and the next yeah, one so is lifeboat yeah so it's pretty early in his hollywood career so he goes on right after this to just knock out i mean spellbound notorious rope uh strangers on a train so he yeah he's just kind of as as, as successful as he was early on he's about to just knock out some just one after the other of his kind of classics yeah this is a start to a really strong run. Well, a continuation, I suppose, of a really strong run when you consider uh, Rebecca and Foreign Correspondent and Saboteur, which lost the, the vote, which I really like. And if you guys haven't seen it, I think it's a super fun film. It's like, you know, it's fun in the way that North by Northwest is kind of fun. It's not super serious. Um, yeah. And it's a really good, really good Hitchcockian high altitude ending sequence. You know, he likes a, a high altitude set piece. Um, so I'd recommend Saboteur if you do get a chance before it expires, if you don't happen to have a Hitchcock box set like me. Yeah, I, I love North by Northwest. So I'll, I'll definitely try to make that a priority. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, the only thing I kind of want to touch on before we wrap up on Shadow of a Doubt, unless obviously you guys have anything else to touch on, but I sort of alluded to it a few times um, throughout the podcast, or throughout you know what we've been talking about here, um, and it's the sort of it's the subtext behind you know the whole abuse angle. Um, mm -hmm. I, I want to kind of touch on because it's something I, you know, like we said, it's it's plain and obvious for anyone watching this film for the first time that. The two, the two charities have a weird dynamic. You know, it's plain to see for anyone when they're first watching the film. And it was only something I kind of picked up on a little bit more during the second watch. Um, like I said, they just have this really sickly chemistry and we'll be talking about sickly chemistries in the next film as well. But this one's probably a, a bit more, a bit more uh, in that. You know, like I said, we see sort of Charlie's burgeoning sexuality. She's finished school. You know, she's being courted as a potential mate by this detective, but she can't really kind of let go of uncle Charlie and her sort of obsession with her. And we see kind of weird things happen throughout the film. You know, the way he sort of grabs her and holds her during certain scenes, he literally gives her an engagement ring, obviously not, he doesn't propose to her, but he gives her an engagement ring, you know, that belonged to one of the widows that, that he that he killed um there was like there was a i wasn't like fully convinced for a lot of it but there was like this one scene and it's such a small moment in the film and it just immediately clicked with me um so it's like during the second half of the film charlie's ripe with suspicion we already know at this stage that he is the merit well that he probably is the merry widow killer um mm -hmm. charlie's ripe with suspicion tensions are high and they're sitting down to dinner and emma the mother who also has a very sort of strange relationship with her brother 
uh, in terms of how much she's obsessed with him as well. But you know, by the by, um, she tells Anne, the youngest daughter, go sit beside Uncle Charlie, and Anne flat out says, "No, I don't want to sit next to Uncle Charlie." And it's just kind of out of left field. There's been no, there's been no reason. We're we're not told why she doesn't want to. She just flat out denies she does not want to sit next to Uncle Charlie. Mm-hmm. And there was something yeah, in my head I that I thought, yeah, I just said, just like that's odd because Anne's in no way involved in the main plot of this film. We know that she's smart, so maybe you know whether she's been doing maybe her own sort of checking in the background. But to me, it actually speaks volumes that. Now I'm not going to say that Charlie was abusing Anne or anything like that, but it's just. It's just a weird little scene that kind of points towards not just Charlie being suspicious of Uncle Charles, that and another young woman of the family also is uncomfortable near her uncle for whatever reason. And yeah, and you know, there's Charlie, a yeah, I think that's a really great angle because there's almost this disillusioned scene for most of them. Um, Anne's got it there, Charlie has hers. The dad gets it at the bank where it's just a small scene, but you can tell he kind of gets a little pissy about how he speaks while he's there. And um, really the mom is the only one who never gets that, which I think is kind of interesting. And this this is why I I go down the abuse angle, because what do you normally always see in situations of family, familial abuse? You have an absent-minded parent who's not seeing the red flags. And that's Emma in this scene. There's a red flag here. Why would her daughter not want to sit beside her uncle that everyone apparently loves? But she just shoes it away. She's like, oh, fine, whatever. Son, and then makes you... it and then makes up a lie so it doesn't hurt Charlie's feelings. Yeah. It's yeah. It's it's a really, it's just a really good small scene. And you know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it's just when I saw it, it just it got wheels turning in my head. That yeah, and that's that's why I think this film could be seen as like an allegory for for you know abuse and the the time period it came in on i mean the idea might be to read into it like a decent amount about what's going on like hey we can't directly address this but yeah you can you can read into that Mm -hmm. and also we've already kind of been talking about how meticulous hitchcock is in the details he puts in the movie i doubt that would have been in there by accident I'm yeah, wondering, you know, thing, and like, it's such a it's such an inconsequential scene in the grand scheme of things. So why include it? Why why have that moment if it wasn't in somewhat relevant? You know, in a way, I'm not as this is where my my lack of formal training kind of hurts me a little bit. But have you all ever heard of this idea of like the audience proxy as a character? Yeah, like basically, there's a character that you're just supposed to it's supposed to represent the audience, kind of like uh, Ellen Page's character in Inception. She's an audience proxy. Okay. Is everything so, splinter? Is that what you're kind of talking about? Yeah, like, like, yes, exactly. So it's it. You're you're supposed to like, they're supposed to represent how you're supposed to feel in that moment towards the story, I guess, right? Like they kind right. of show you like what's going on or explain it or whatever. And I, it, I wonder if it's it's even something like that where, you know, we're start like like the audience is starting to get a little uncomfortable with Uncle Charlie at this point. And so it feels right to like not want to sit next to him. I, I, I don't know, because the only reason I'm saying that is because I, I, I'm intrigued at the idea of the abuse angle. I don't want to discredit that. I think that's a super interesting uh, um, uh, idea. But 
you know, if we look at the beginning of the film, the way Anne is used, it's clear that she's like this bright, emotionally intelligent young girl that, that has IQ, but also a strong EQ. And she really can like pick up on kind of what's going on, but she doesn't have the relationship to uncle Charlie, right? Like she doesn't have the baggage, whatever kind of spell he's put on young Charlie and the mom, uh, Anne doesn't have that. So in, in that way, she could be a good audience proxy as well to kind of just see that like something is off. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I, that's, um, legitimate as well for sure um because we only kind of get Anne in very key scenes like mm-hmm. um like when you get her at the dinner and you get her she was supposed to take the telegram and she didn't um and that's the ones that stick out to me and the moment she's talking to the detectives yeah and that's uh, that's kind of everything i mean she gets more than her little brother does what was his name robert I don't even know. Yeah. I, don't, I don't even remember. He has his, barely his any character's name. <laughs> yeah, he's just. They could have cut, actually. They could have just cut him out. I don't think it makes a difference. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. The uh, the only la- la- last thing I kind of want to bring because I know you, with Hitchcock you kind of talk forever about something, but um, I, I do think this is interesting, kind of in a, a uh, compared to Psycho, because since they're both serial killer stories um just kind of like how they compare and how they uh how they differ one of the things that i thought was the most interesting is with psycho obviously the um you know the people who get killed are there because they go to the uh the hotel they go to bates hotel and you know they they put themselves almost in a sense putting themselves in the danger um that going there this one's a little bit interesting uh, as almost like a companion piece because it is like about the danger coming to this small town like you know with norman bates nobody bothers him nothing happens but he is a lot more um active in that destruction like of this this little town um just by being there and i think that's really interesting that you know he, he kind of went th- those ways i don't know what is that like 17 years apart with these two very very different serial killer stories but they're both based on um real life killers but i think this character is supposed to be based on like the gorilla man from twenties who is like killing widows and stuff. So it has basic, obviously Hitchcock just really like true crime stuff because I think this one's also based in some true crime as well. Yeah. And that angle about oh. danger coming to the town is interesting as well, considering it's implied that he, he, he might, if he didn't get caught, he might've begun shacking up with the widow that they meet at the bank. Uh, yeah. sort of earlier on because Emma mentions throughout the film that's that that the widow is interested in Charlie or you know interested in spending time with him so there's the implication there that just because he's here visiting doesn't mean he's he's kind of stopped his ways yeah it's almost like he can't help himself you know yeah. it's his, exactly. it's his revenue stream yeah <laughs> exactly um sorry you mentioned uh um serial killers and it just reminded me this feels a little bit like the talented mr ripley character from the highsmith novels and i'm just wondering yeah 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 but i don't know those that came out in 1955 and this was what 43 okay never mind then so i don't know maybe she could have possibly been influenced by by the movie but that's a that's a bold claim Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there, there's definitely similarities. I, I think the difference is uh, Ripley is a lot more of a chameleon type character where the, the difference with that with Charlie is he is the way he is. He's not, cha- you know, he has a charm to him and that's how he allures people. But 
at the end of the day, it, you know, Ripley is much more of a, I'll change to benefit myself. Yeah. He really doesn't have any personality. He takes personality. That's so true. there's definitely similarities though. I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's without pressing to say though, that she could have like, cause you, she worked with Hitchcock. Okay. I didn't realize that. that. That's pretty, she cool. wrote, but... she wrote the script for strangers on a train. Oh, I'll have to watch that. Okay. So it's not without precedent. Um, or maybe she wrote the book it's based on something like that. She was involved in strangers on a train from a writing capacity or the screenplay or the original book. So it's not without precedent that she could have potentially been inspired by it in some way, but we don't know for sure, I suppose. I'm, I'm looking. Yeah. Anyways, I feel like that's a pretty good dive into shadow of a doubt. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's so much rich discussion on this. I just, I know I've said this the second time, but if anybody wants to take a deep dive, some of the comments on shadow of a doubt on our, on our discussion, I just loved reading. Like I thought this was a great discussion. Yeah. I think just Hitchcock just brings that out on people. He's just one of those directors that just universally beloved. Yeah. And just to know, uh, she wrote the novel, but she was she didn't write the screenplay, but it is based. Okay, on I knew she was involved in some capacity. I couldn't remember exactly. It makes sense that she was that she wrote the novel. Uh, all right, and uh, so for this week, and we're doing collection corner again here. Uh, makes me really happy that we're getting back into this on a weekly basis, uh, or or on a uh, podcast basis here, because uh, there's so much fun stuff to talk about. Um, they are, so in terms of pre-orders, one of the ones that I'm very excited about is Grindhouse releasing, came out of the gate swinging in 2022, and they have a, a two-disc limited edition of Death Game, which I'm very pumped about. And it actually, it comes with a keychain that's a meat cleaver if you get the limited edition. So I might have to switch to that. Uh, have you seen Death Game, Zach? No, I haven't seen it. I, I've heard of it, and I'm really interested in it, but I haven't got a chance yeah. to yet. It's a I like that I, you I knew not to ask me. No, I was going to say, I like that you Adam, knew not to bother asking me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then they, they're, they're doing this thing, which I think is really cool. More, more and more publishing houses are getting into where they're actually publishing books as well. So Grindhouse is coming out with a, a Rudy Ray Moore kind of bio called thank you for letting me view myself and the book looks great um so they they're starting off the year really strong um and then i just want to highlight one of the ones that came in since the last time we spoke so i've got i finally bought the bullet on the um, the ringu collection from uh, arrow before it goes out of print the limited okay. edition there and then the cold war creatures before it goes out of print i got that oh is it going out of print I'm going to have to order it. Well, the limited edition. You know, Arrow always comes back with standards, right? Yeah, they yeah. come back with a sort of thinner, the thinner box with no booklet. And then they always do a third edition, which is just like a single disc pack. And it'll have like maybe two or three discs in the one Blu-ray box, if that makes sense. Yeah, so yeah. Nothing's ever truly limited in terms of like the raw films. It's only really the like the booklets and the hardcover um, boxes that, sort of come and go but you'll always Which have to get too far off i wish more companies would do that like just keep the film available yeah exactly i i do hope we see more of that and indicator is probably the one that is the biggest culprit here right or do they do they put out standard editions of the uh, no see indicator no, are really 
yeah indicator are good a lot of their box sets they'll put them out as like single disc standards okay, good, um good, good. so like a way like with arrow arrow do it different so like for example like i have the human condition trilogy from arrow like their limited set version is this nice box with three separate discs whereas mine yeah. is just one box with one di- or two discs that has all the films whereas with indicator with their like hammer films and stuff like that, they'll release each film in that as an individual sort of standard edition later down the line. And um, I'll use an example of their, their single stuff. No one who's listening is going to be able to see this, but I'll explain it. See, uh, Chris, see, this is their vampires. It's um, it's just a single box. And if you compare it to their standard of Laura Mars, it has the top on there. This is to them what their limited edition is. A little bit cleaner. Doesn't have the top end where it has Blu-ray on top, like they're like the Laura Mars does. Yeah, I'm, I'm but I'm not paying $150 to get Laura Mars in a better case. I'm just yeah, not doing it. Yeah, it all depends yeah. on when you buy it. Like similar here, my friend, mine. So I have, like, I have the standard edition of um, Experiment in Terror, so it has like the blue. But then, because I pre-ordered it, I have the the limited edition of Eve from Joseph Losey. So like you were saying, now my standard edition is still like, like this still has like the indicator banner banner and stuff. I don't know why that's different for your vampires, but. Um, yeah, well, uh, the reason that is, is because in the US we get the reversible cover. I could have that, but I don't like the stupid rating system you guys have. Oh, yeah, 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 it yeah, So yeah. it doesn't have I, that. I, I do also have reversible covers and reverse does not have the indicator thing. So yes, you're completely correct on that. So that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I, um, I, I, that's yeah. The, I was like the only thing I was so proud when I got Indicator and they didn't have they had an option where you didn't have to have the the age thing on it. I was like, yeah, I'm switching cool. that. Yeah. yeah, I think arrows yeah. are similar. The arrow reversals, the the reverse side doesn't have the age thing. Just a pity. I don't tend to like a lot of the reverse ones because yeah, I just don't really care for most of them. Well, um, speaking of indicator, I finally got in the May West set, and I didn't realize that thing was such a monster. That, that yeah, set is I'm gonna I'm gonna try and pick that up uh, on next payday, I think, because it looks like a great set. I can't say I've ever seen a May West film, but the set just looks too good. I would not want that going out of print on me. Yeah, the I've only seen one. Um, uh, shoot, uh, I'll, I'll remember the name here in a second. Sorry, but she's just. She's one of these real snappy, witty, high energy, sort of great dialogue, like confident women that was around pre-code. You know, her films are fun and like a John um, Blondell. Yeah, I just, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, it, she, she's a lot of fun. But I was a little curious why the set was more expensive. I mean, it was like seventy pounds, I think, uh, if you get it full full retail, but then or sixty pounds, something like that. But then I saw there was more 10 films. movies. Like, yeah, there's loads of movies included compared to like their other sets, which are normally like six, whereas this is exactly. like 10, like you said. So I think that's probably the reason. I'm No Angel is the one I've seen from her, uh, which is great. And she only has 13 credits and there's 10 here. So it's a pretty comprehensive set too. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's one I'm going to be picking up soon myself as well. I was just seeing uh, this is true. I think it's all of her movies, maybe with the extent of one, because she did some TV as well. Anyways, it's a comprehensive set, uh, so I'm very happy to pick that up. What about you, uh, Zach or Adam? What have y'all been collecting? Um, I can make mine pretty quick. Uh, I haven't got them yet. They're coming in. Most of them will be in tomorrow, and then one will be in on Tuesday. 
but I've been kind of putting off getting all the Blue Underground stuff. Like, mm-hmm. um, currently I have, like, House in the Cemetery, Zombie, um, Maniac. Can I see it from here? Uh, all of them. Oh, and Daughter, Daughters of Darkness. So I have those four for their 4Ks. And um, really just wanted to catch up. So I made a big, like, Vinegar Syndrome order where I got, um, since they sell their stuff, and I was able to get uh, the final countdown, Dead and Buried, Vigilante, Maniac Cap, Cop 2 and 3. Then from eBay, I got the Two Evil Eyes. And then I have pre-ordered the Toolbox Murders on Amazon. So I nice. should be pretty much caught up on Blue Underground 4Ks after that. Um, the only one that I'm going to be missing a slip for is Zombie. Because for whatever reason, that had the most limited slip I've ever seen in my life. And well, they, they, they had $100. Like- they have like three different kinds. Isn't that the one that has like the lenticular slipcover? Only their Blu-ray. Now their Blu-ray edition has three. Their 4K only has the standard. Um, oh, honestly, their Blu-ray release of Zombie, I would argue, might have been a little bit better. Um, but it wasn't the 4K disc. So the 4K yeah, disc yeah. only had one option. I mean, at this point, I'm almost tempted to go ahead and order one of the Blu-ray zombies and just put the slip on it just to have it, just because it's kind of bothers me to have all of them together. But that's almost like a frivolous and wasteful thing to spend money on. So that's probably not going to Mine's going to be pretty quick as well. I'm still waiting for my big batch of Chinese films to come in from Eureka. I was hoping it would have been in by now, but they seem to be taking its time coming across the Irish Sea. Um, so I'll have to chase that up and see what's going on there. So like, I've just been picking up a couple of little things here and there. Um, there's finally a Region B release of Hiroshima Mon Amour that Criterion have done. Uh, that came in during the week. Uh, obviously, that was one of our sort of early film club films. I think we watched it on like maybe a week six or seven it was pretty early in the film club when we first watched it and i loved it so it's always nice to have a physical copy of a film that you like so you can easily re-watch it um the only other thing that i'm sort of waiting to come in it should be here tomorrow um just during the week i was just kind of looking up sort of like big directors that are blind spots for me that i haven't seen anything from and this kind of ties into a an announcement that we'll probably do maybe not on this podcast maybe on the next one but um, yeah, I was just looking at directors that I just had a complete blind spot for. I hadn't seen any of their movies. Um, and one filmmaker that I had sort of figured out that I hadn't seen anything from that's probably really big was uh, Pasolini. Um, yeah. So I said, okay, let's, you know, let's, let's find a Pasolini film. And I've said, well, I'm not going to start heavy with Salo. Um I'm going to maybe start something a little bit different. And around this time, I started this week, gotten back into reading uh, the story of film uh, from Mark Cousins, which I talked about before on the podcast. I know you have a copy of it as well, Chris. Um, I started reading through that again as I'm going to bed, um, just for the last sort of hour or so to get away from my phone. And he got talking about uh, Pasolini. I believe it was his first film, but it was definitely an early film from Pasolini that very much touches on uh neorealism which you guys probably know i'm a big fan of as i've talked about it before it's called akatone uh i don't know if you've seen it chris i know that you've seen a few no. pasolini films not that one i that that one seems more interesting uh than the early one i saw from him which i hated so much but i i like <laughs> pasolini 
Um, yeah, I feel like I need to, like, I want to watch some of his stuff, but obviously I didn't want to start with anything too crazy, you know, like Salo or Tiarama or the Cameron, you know, those kind of sort of yeah. really sort of arty ones. I thought I'd start with something maybe a bit easier. It was, it was basically between this and the, the Gospel of St. Matthew, I want to say. Yeah, um, but I'm not. Yeah, and I'm not a big religious guy, so it didn't really appeal to me too much. Although I heard the film was very well made, the you know it doesn't really really appeal to me all that much. So, Akatoni was really up my street. Uh, Eureka have a Region B release for it. It also includes uh, a documentary that he made as well. So, um, that should be here. I, I got a text message earlier from the post office saying it should be delivered tomorrow. Sometimes they're a day off, so it might be Tuesday. But I'll, I'll probably be watching that during the week. And if I like what I see, I'll I'll dive a little bit deeper into, into Pasolini. Eventually, work up the courage to watch say hello but uh yeah uh, best one me. to start with <laughs> good date movie as everybody says ha, ha, yeah. ha, ha. um oedipus rex is the one i was thinking about it, yeah that's another one Oedip- eureka have eureka have a few of his films um, they have that one they have the the gospel and they have oedipus rex it it's just like this weird mix of like no budget and also highly pretentious and I just didn't get it. I hated it so much. It's like the special effects budget was like he went back into his shed and just kind of found some buckets and stuff and tried to make a movie about Oedipus Rex. I hated, ugh. I, you know, and I, I champion low budget movies. Like I'm, I'll talk one on any other business here in a minute. Like I, I love it. But if you're going to go that route, it's really hard to go the, the pretentious route for me. I, those two don't mix well. I'm like, know yourself. <laughs> but anyways, I... I like Pasolini overall. That one just anyway, yeah. Good good luck with that. I hope it's I hope you love it. Yeah, we'll do another director to take off the box, I suppose. Yeah. All right, and welcome back. Now we're gonna continue our Alfred Hitchcock train here, and we're gonna talk about his 1958 film Vertigo. A former San Francisco police detective juggles wrestling with his personal demons and becoming obsessed with the hauntingly beautiful woman he has been hired to trail, who may be deeply disturbed. So uh, before the show, we kind of got a little hint that Chris here is um, a hater. So we're going to start with him and he can give us the rundown on what number this is and all that and get his thoughts. Okay, so, uh, yeah, Um, here we go. Uh, Okay, Vertigo, They Shoot Pictures is number two. And I believe... (laughs) Too low, too low. Uh, and I believe that in sight and sound, it actually has overtaken Citizen Kane. Is that right? As of the 2012 poll, yes. Who knows what it will be for this year? But 2012 poll, it dethroned Citizen Kane for the first time ever. The Citizen Kane wasn't the number one. So for, for sure, top three movie of all time on by judged by uh, people who know this kind of stuff and write about film a lot and make lists and um, tend to love film. So... I have definitely seen Vertigo before, and I remember thinking it was okay. Uh, and I always forget that it's the second best film of all time, or first, depending on the list. So I went into it again, just finished Loving Shadow of a Doubt. Uh, re- really love Hitchcock in general, I would say, I think, although I'm questioning myself now. But here's the thing I, I noticed this time around, and I'm just curious to hear y'all tell me why I'm an idiot. This movie ends like five times and every time it, so like not really, if you think about like, you know, 
Oh, by the way, can we talk about spoilers or do we need to like be careful with the spoilers? I think it's impossible to talk about Vertigo and it not involve spoilers. And, I, and Hitchcock I, spoiled his own movie halfway through anyway, so. Yeah, I, mean. I, I tried my, <laughs> when writing my review for the website, I like tried my level best to make it as vague as possible, but it's going to be impossible. So if you're listening and for some reason you haven't seen Vertigo, pause this, go watch Vertigo. It's on the Criterion channel up until the end of January. So depending on when you're listening, you might have to go fuck yourself. Uh, and then come back and listen because what are you doing with your life if you haven't seen Vertigo? But anyway, Chris, continue. You can oh. talk about spoilers. Just, yeah, we'll just go from there. Yeah, perfect. Well, thanks. <laughs> so, okay. The first time that Kim Novak dies, it did this thing where like the, the music kind of swelled and it went to black and the movie kind of ended, right? I know there's like a lot of story left. But like there, there was like a there was a big like sort of point there in the in the story, like a break in the story, kind of right. And then it, you know, you you go back to him, kind of like trying to pick up his life, and and uh, like he's in that mental hospital briefly, and then you you see him kind of regain his life and re meet the girl, um, and and do his whole thing with her, and then like as it ends, there's a couple of other times that feel like the movie sort of stops for me, and here, here's the problem I had with it. Like, how long is the actual movie? It's like two hours and eight minutes or something, right? Yeah, something right. Like yeah, around two hours. Yeah, I'm too crazy over that. Yeah, yeah, two hours and eight minutes. And I felt after about the first hour, hour and twenty minutes, like I felt that last hour, like it dragged for me. And I wanted, I, I just, I didn't like the Jimmy Stewart character in the way that he was grooming this woman who he sort of. Assume, I mean, correct, you know, to his credit, like correctly assumed was, was the original woman. Um, I, and I, I, I don't really like fifties melodramas anyways. I've kind of, and, and so it had just enough of that kind of like fifties Hollywood kind of melodrama plus the creepy Jimmy Stewart. And I just felt this time it was kind of just dragging through and like, I kind of wanted the movie to end and I'm sorry, the world and film community. I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'm so glad you mentioned creepy Jimmy Stewart because that's the yeah. whole point. That's the whole point. It's Jimmy freaking well, Stewart. Yes. Well, and you know, one thing I think with Chris that I noticed this time around is the perspective changes in this movie, like heavy. Like there's even like a camera shot that where, you know, you're in Jimmy Stewart's perspective, but you switch over to Judy and it becomes from her perspective. Like the, the trip, the, you know, the, the, what she's going through. So it, it, okay. it, it is, in a lot of ways, Jimmy Stewart's story is really over for much of the movie. And it's switching to kind of her consequences and almost like her karmic retribution for what she did. Exactly. You know? okay. it's, it's, you mentioned it feels like the film ends when Kim Novak, we think Kim Novak's character has died, her first character. Um, you mentioned you didn't feel that the film ends because the chapter is kind of closed on as, as Axel and Jimmy Stewart's character. That chapter is closed. And then the second half of the film, as you said, the after effects, Judy becomes more of the focus. And we're seeing Jimmy Stewart's character from her perspective as this obsessive freak, this, this near maniac. He starts off, yeah. oh, 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 gee, oh, swell, proper Jimmy Stewart. He starts off like a normal Jimmy Stewart character. And we just slowly see him descend into being a jealous, controlling maniac. And you, you never see that with Jimmy Stewart. And that's what's great. You're supposed to be creeped out by him in the second half, the way he's grooming her. 
it's it's good that you felt that way because if you didn't you'd be a psycho yeah i mean there's even a point where you can like at first you're like you know i feel bad for him like that's that's such a hard thing to deal with he never got closure it's got to mess with you but he he was dealt a shitty level such a level and it's like oh god he was he was dealt a super shitty hand by some shitty people but he does not help himself he does not help himself in any way shape or form so i was ready to give him that credit but then the 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 film ends with him kind of being the hero in a sense right no i mean he i I mean he's right you can be right and be an asshole like yeah Oh, was, yeah, yeah like for sure he was right but I, he's i don't think he's, he's far from heroic really okay like he didn't okay. he I'm didn't have to, to like he didn't have to do what he did he didn't have to he figured it out he didn't have he could have called her shit on it top. way before then <laughs> yeah you know it's well as soon as he saw the, we're i think i feel like we're getting like way ahead of ourselves in this conversation but like <laughs> as soon as he saw the necklace he knew because the dream sequence prior to this made it abundantly clear the necklace was important you know, that, right. that dream sequence, obviously we talked about sort of dream sequences of Shadow of a Doubt and how it kind of laid a clue. This clue is a lot more obvious this time around because we don't need to know the name of an old fucking waltz to get it. It, <laughs> it zooms in on the necklace. It makes an obvious point that the necklace is important. And then it comes back then and we see her put on the necklace. Very stupid thing for Kim Novak's character to do, by the way, to keep the necklace that points to a crime. Um, but I suppose that kind of points to maybe that, you know, she, she's not very bright of a person you know she was talking to doing a ridiculous crime in the first place she has a chance to get out and run she doesn't do it she be she sort of is sickly and this is where i talked i, I mentioned briefly during shadow of a doubt that we talk about sickly chemistry kim novak and james stewart have this sick um kind of um codependency codependency exactly they have this sick relationship in this film that, that really adds to it because you mentioned like there's a lot of melodramatic moments in this but you would never see this kind of chemistry in a melodrama it's like taking the melodrama and just cranking it up to a level where it becomes weird yeah in a lot of ways it is like um you know going back to shadow of a doubt when you look at uh charlie and young charlie um, they have a, that interesting relationship there. You know, I think there was a, a quote where the, a big point of Shadow of a Down is having to kill, you know, who, who you love and stuff like that and loving someone after you do a horrible act and things like that. And th- that's kind of cranked up here, like a lot. Like these, obviously they feel something for each other, whether it's healthy or not, whether they should is a whole different situation. But that's kind of what makes it interesting is she's willing to go this far whether it's out of guilt or it's out of love or whatever to do something no one should do <laughs> but yeah, at like the same time she brought it on herself in some ways yeah like mm. this film is, a, is about obsession you know obviously jimmy stewart's character scotty he's obsessed with with madeline um and then in the second half judy sort of becomes obsessed with jimmy stewart to the point where out of her jealousy and her envy for how he feels towards Madeline and I'll probably touch on that when we talk a bit more about the cinematography but out of that sort of jealousy she allows herself to be made over and in a sense you know kind of in a, in a way kind of admits to the crime that's probably been burdening her but the fact that she's you know dressed herself up to look exactly like her there's no way that anyone could look exactly like another person unless they are that person even twins you know so in a way her sort of going along with it she's almost kind of admitting her guilt or allowing it 
maybe to to free herself of the guilt because she becomes a much brighter, happier person when they're getting ready to go out, you know, after she's done, she's gotten all dolled up and everything like that. And she puts on the necklace. She's in, she's in the best mood we've ever seen Judy's character, you know, in that second half of the film, right? almost like it's a weight has been lifted. Um, which obviously, you know, kind of turns on its head then later on. I, I feel like we kind of really need to, backtrack <laughs> we got yeah, very there's so much that goes on. there's so much to unpack yeah and i feel like we got right we, we, yeah we went straight to like the end of the film um let's just let's just sort of maybe backtrack a little bit um it's best film ever made chris you're objectively wrong um it's best film ever made <laughs> uh, no look it's it's such a great setup you know it's such a unique film you know, in terms of like, you know, just film the wires and stuff. They've never really been about something like this where a detective is tracking a woman because she's been having moments where she believes that she's a woman from the past and she's obsessed with sitting in front of a painting. Sort of like we talked about Shadow of a Doubt, this sort of weird, subtle, sub potentially supernatural moments kind of happen in this film as well. Uh, like when he's trailing her and he sees her upstairs in the apartment building. And he goes in then and the, the owner of the apartments are like, no, she's not here. There's her key and her car is gone from outside, which all this stuff makes sense in hindsight. You know, there's a lot of stuff in the first half of the film. If you're watching it for the first time, it's odd, you know, like that moment, you know, where he goes to the apartment building and we see her in the window, but then her car is gone. And the person who owns the building says that, oh, she's not here. I haven't seen her today. When you first watch, you think, OK, that's weird. Now, when you watch back, you think, okay, well, obviously Elster has paid her off to lie to Jimmy Stewart to make him think he's maybe going a little bit cuckoo. And then, you know, when she throws herself into the bay and he brings her back to his house and undresses her and dries her off. And if that was a real woman, she'd be like, what the fuck are you doing? I'm calling the police. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, that's a weird moment when you first watch the film. You think this, this is weird. No sane person does anything like this or puts up with this or stays in this house. And now it obviously makes sense. You know, this was the plan to save her. She's not like, why would she bolt away from the plan just because he's done something a little bit weird? It's all part of the plan to get, um, you know, to, to sort of make Jimmy Stewart believe that she is this mad woman um, that, that will kill herself, which obviously which we find out is all a, very, uh, very um, weird plot to, to have the real Madeline sort of killed off. Um, like, I, I, I will not, I will not doubt, I will not say that the plot is not convoluted or, uh, and, and the murder plot, the sort of undertones throughout the film is not convoluted. It absolutely is. Um, but the way it unfolds is, is fantastic. And it, and it makes for a fantastic second plus viewing once you kind of know what's going to happen everything else all the other pieces kind of start to fall into place yeah and that's i kind of touched on this before we started recording this segment but this is like you know because there's there's a big thing and this is going to be me on a soapbox for a second where people kind of talk about plot holes and like they use that as like this catch-all to say like all the movie's bad because this doesn't make perfect sense and Vertigo is kind of always my example. I was like, there's things about here you kind of have to stretch your logic a little bit. There's things that you're like, yeah, would anyone actually go through all this to just murder their wife? Or would they just, you know, do a car accident like a normal person, like cut their brakes or something? But the movie is better 
for that. Like it's yeah, you might sacrifice a little logic, but the movie itself is better to have these weird elements and to have this thing because I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, the idea that he's got to chase her up this bell tower and his vertigo gets to him and stuff. I was like, that all ties in so well by like the last shot of the film. That's like, I don't care. That sounds awesome. And that's why I like, you know, that's the thing with Vertigo. It's like, it doesn't have to make perfect sense to be great. And I don't think movies should be expected to, because I think uh, I read a quote where Albert Hitchcock, he was talking to um, Ken Novick, and she wanted the motivation for her character. And he says, it's not that deep, it's just a movie. And I think that <laughs> really captures, you know, what, what it is. It's a movie. <laughs> yeah, like we would just assume that that we obviously know Madeline's real name and the second half of the film is Judy. Um She's, you know, she's from Buckass Nowhere, come to San Francisco. We, we, we're not really given the ins and outs of how she met Gavin Elster or, or why she sort of agreed to this, but we assume she's just motivated by money. Like most people who come to a big city from a small town, I'm sure she was well compensated for her role in this. Um, she could have potentially like met him and, you know, maybe was a, even a mistress or something like that. And I mean, she got a, she got an apartment in San Francisco. She had to have been paid pretty well. <laughs> I think she was living in a hotel, though, if I remember correctly. Was that what that uh, was? Like, I know the yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Never mind. I was thinking of Jimmy Stewart's house. Oh yeah, his house was pretty kitschy and cool and very trendy. Um, so yeah, he was yeah. obviously well compensated as a detective. Anyway, I don't know how well compensated detectives were in back day back in those days, but uh, he must have been pretty well compensated. Chris, have we made any ground with what you've been? <laughs> What, what, He's gonna be like, honestly, I hate are. it more than I did when we started. Yeah, I, I feel like <laughs> I, we need to sort of slowly chip away. Uh, um, it, you y'all have answered one of the questions I had of why they didn't, you know, reconcile the the actual plot, the person who actually constructed this plot, right? Like, we don't see any retribution towards the the husband here, the friend of Jimmy Stewart, who can who concocted this really like devious plot, right? All the Sort of vengeance is put on the on the um, the woman Kim Novak, but I think there was that, supposed to be yeah. to answer your question. There was supposed to be, and Hitchcock fought against it. The studio wanted there to be a report at the very end of uh, uh, what's Midge, the character Midge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they wanted to have the last the last shot of the film. The studio wanted it to be her listening to the radio about Gavin Elster being chased across Europe. And Hitchcock said, no. I mean, think about how much worse that is than Jimmy Stewart standing at the edge of a bell tower looking down. That is yeah. way better of an ending. Way better. Well, way better of an ending. And just to y'all's point, though, like this is the story of obsession. This is not the story of a crime being solved. Like Absolutely. It's the obsession yeah. is the most important part. The mechanics of the crime are not overly important. There's They're there right. to serve a bigger purpose, which is the dangers of obsession. And also the want for, for an identity, because obviously that's what Judy sort of goes through, um, her, her sort of want for her, her for her own identity, because she's been pretending to be this other person for half the film. So Jimmy Stewart's about the danger of obsession. For her, it's about to sort of want to, to be, or her, you know, to want for her own personality. Uh, to talk about Midge for a second and the obsession, I, I kind of want to go back to her for a second because I think she plays such an interesting part of the film where they have this like really interesting, very platonic like relationship through yeah. like, the first mm-hmm. half. And I'll be honest, the creepiest thing in the whole movie because I had forgotten all about this since it's been a while since I've seen it. When he shows the paint, when she shows him the painting, 
creepiest thing so in the movie. Weird. I was like, oh my god. Such another thing. I think it's one of those things where like she's quite obviously in love with him. And you know, he just kind of sees her as a as a pal or whatever. Um I love her character as well. Barbara Bill Geddes, the actress, is that she she did a fantastic job, and I think she she's obviously the third most important character in the film, aside from maybe Gavin Elster, but we don't we only see him in one scene, maybe maybe two, because he's two at scenes. the um, trial as well. Oh yes, he's at the trial afterwards, exactly. So he's there in two scenes. Maybe just probably herself only there in two scenes, but she she plays such a crucial part, not really in the plot, but more so in Jimmy Stewart's character, because his character yeah. is obsessed with someone he cannot have you know he can't have madeline because she's not real basically she's not a real person you know it's judy pretending to be madeline she's completely unattainable in the most obvious sense of the world because she does not really actually exist um then in the second you know he he turns down mitch because he's in love with madeline inverted commas madeline um and then he models judy into being Madeline because he doesn't want Judy. He, he wants Madeline. He's obsessed with this ghost, which is ironic because it plays into the, the whole sort of reason he's been hired, you know, to, to be on this case is because of this sort of fake story that Madeline is obsessed with the ghost of Carlotta Valdez. And then Jimmy Stewart himself becomes obsessed with a ghost of a, of a person who's not even real. So there's, there's, there's so much nuance and there's so much mirroring and sort of recurring themes throughout this film. And it's just all just, it's just neatly packaged so perfectly. And it, 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 she, Judy herself, gets kind of obsessed with a idealistic version of Jimmy Stewart. You know, the man who's there to save her, the man who's, you know, that romanticism. And yeah. that's why she's willing to go so far, just so she can like, almost like she can have that moment again. Yeah, she just wants to have. feel, she just wants to feel loved. And she's willing to go to the point where she will essentially play make-believe, you know, that she is this Madeline character again, just, just to feel that love and attention. Yeah, even though what they see of each other isn't real. Because we get to no. see what Jimmy Stewart, yeah, neither, neither version of each other is real. This is it. It's, it's, not, it's so toxic. I, I'm not asking y'all to, like, actually answer this question, but I'm thinking, like, an interesting question that comes out of this movie as I hear y'all talk is, like, what are those things we have in our own lives that are, you know, maybe mirages or things that we're holding on to that are, you know, borderline obsessions to us, but, but they're limiting us from kind of becoming who we should be. Like, there's an interesting angle here, kind of making it more than just a love story about, you know, between Scotty and, and Madeline, but really kind of making it more universal theme, which I think... I, Hitchcock has certainly done before um, in his other movies. And I wouldn't be surprised if this idea of obsession or holding on to things in the past, which were always a ghost, but we still hold on to them as if they were real. Like that's a pretty universal theme. I, you know, watching it again with that lens, I might have a different experience because that's a pretty heavy and like interesting theme to kind of explore. Well, we kind of deal with that, you know, Adam, you touched on, you know, the chasing ghosts. That's, that's essentially, that's what we're doing here. We do, people do that all the time. I mean, you know, there are people in your life that, you know, were flawed individuals, but they pass away and years pass by and you remember an idealistic aspect of them and you hold on to that and sometimes to a almost negative consequence to not being able to move on. 
And I think that's a lot of here too. I think that is something that people can identify with pretty well. The idea of chasing ghosts. Yeah, for sure. Like I, I would maybe for a first time viewer, like I, I would not call anything about Vertigo a love story or a romantic story or anything like that. It is an obsession with, um, you know, would cling to something that you, you don't, you, you can't have, or you don't have, or you, you feel like you need to have it's that obsession like we said chasing ghosts or chasing after sort of one fleeting moment again uh, after it's passed you know more and so in judy's case you know chasing after that love that jimmy stewart you know had you know maybe given her when she was playing madeline but again it's all it's all make-believe it's all chasing ghosts it's all not being able to sort of move on and, and form your own identity and, and sort of move past the obsession um, one element I want to talk on, because I think it's very interesting to hear Hitchcock, because this movie was initially a failure when it came out. It wasn't, it didn't make money. It wasn't. And then it was lost, I think, for like 30 years. Like nobody had seen the movie from like 1960 until like 84 or something like that. I think that if I have the date right. So one of those movies that was lost to like the consciousness of film and um, considered a failure. And one of the things Hitchcock kind of seen as a failure is I think it's interesting to think of it now, but he kind of saw Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novick as the re- a big reason this film failed because he didn't think they worked. And I think that's so interesting to see because they are by far the most interesting element of the film. Their age difference. He thought it was because their age difference. I think the age difference is what makes their relationship, you know, really sells that grooming aspect that we get towards yeah. the end. Like if you had two people who were similar ages, that may not come off as well. And then you have nice guy Jimmy Stewart, who is gonna kind of turn heel a little bit towards the end. And you know, you have um, Kim Novick, who's playing this really staunt and mysterious character. And then you have her in the second half, who's trying to be both more open, but also hide, you know, the truth and all that, and even have moments of wanting to tell the truth. I, I just I couldn't imagine thinking the blame of the film is on them. I just think it's no. kind of fun to think about like that that's how Hitchcock kind of saw this why it failed yeah like, yeah I, I definitely couldn't point to the cast like unless I was like it's hard to sort of say what people were thinking at the time but like we look yeah. at this like with Jimmy Stewart we look at this thinking this is great to see Jimmy Stewart act like this kind of in the same way like you know if, if Tom Hanks was ended up playing this kind of character you know he, he was basically like the Tom Hanks of this era essentially you know nice guy everyone liked Jimmy Stewart he's always the hero um, and it was kind of like a moment with um, with uh, Fonda, with Henry Fonda, when he turned heel in Once Upon a Time in America. Right, yeah. Or Once Upon a Time right. in the West, sorry. Um, Once Upon a Time in the West, you know, audiences had a very similar reaction to that because Henry Fonda was always the good guy. And to see him play a villain mm-hmm. was weird. And it's the same kind of here with Jimmy Stewart, to see him play someone who is morally ambiguous or just outright sometimes menacing and villainous and um, was probably a very strange experience but Kim Novak was fantastic she's the best part of the film the way she just completely turns her character in the second half between Madeline and Judy you know like I remember when I first watched this film and this and I'll be honest with you I did not really like Vertigo that much when I first watched it I thought it was impenetrable I didn't get it I didn't understand what was happening I didn't I didn't even recognize Kim Novak when she returned as Judy later in the film I just I would just completely I just didn't get the film at all and I would now to be fair I was like 17 maybe 18 when I first watched it but I just didn't get it didn't get the hype didn't understand what was happening thought it was crap 
I was only sure rewatches. Obviously, now I understand the dynamics of the plot, the dynamics of the characters, the themes. That's where it just all just wraps up so well. Um, like outside of the cast, like one thing that I love the most about this film is definitely the cinematography. I think it's the best looking film ever made. Any shot from this film, you could take a frame, put it in a literal frame and hang it in an art museum. I just think it's perfectly filmed. The, the, the colors in Technicolor are amazing. And the way that Hitchcock obviously uses color uh, in, in the film as well is, is, is deeply um, metaphorical. He uses color a lot to signal things in this film. Um, like I won't go too deep into it here because I know we're, we're probably running a little long for this segment, but um, there's a, there's a, I did a review of this on the website that is a film.com that kind of talks of this a little bit more about how important some of the colors are, but there's just one scene or just a collection of two scenes from two halves of the film that play off one another so well, when you think of the context of the colors. So it's all about the, the first one is when, Jimmy Stewart is first sort of trailing Madeline and he goes to Ernie's, the restaurant, because he's been told by Gavin Elster that she'll be there that night. He can see her. And it's the first time the audience sees her. It's the first time we see her. And you have that iconic profile shot of Kim Novak. Um, you, it's like one of the most famous shots from the whole film of her in profile. And she's yeah. surrounded by red. And a lot of times with red in films or in, in, in books as well, so the color of red can often signify love and you know that that points to that that you know maybe he's going to eventually fall in love with this person but then red can also be a sign of danger and they, they work so well together both the love and the dangerous aspect because she's surrounded by red it's kind of like metaphorically saying she's, she's surrounded by danger danger surrounds this woman so you will fall in love with her but it's going to be an extremely dangerous situation just in that one shot you can get all of that information if you look into the colors and I'm going to sound like an obsessive freak from that uh, room 234 or whatever, 237. Have you guys seen yeah. that documentary about The Shining? I'm going to sound like one of these yeah. obsessive freaks from that because uh, that's just one of the funniest documentaries ever. It's just full of absolute nut jobs. And I'm going to sound like one of those yeah. with this. But you can tell everything you need to know from this film from that one shot. She is surrounded by the color red. He will fall in love with her, but danger surrounds her. And then the other shot that happens in the second half of the film with Judy when he's kind of pleading her case in her apartment that he wants her to maybe, you know, make her up like Madeline. She sits there again in profile, so matching the earlier shot, but she's surrounded by green. And to me, obviously green, everyone knows what green means. It's envy or jealousy. You know, it's, it's a very common expression to say you're green with envy. And in this scene, you can tell that she is jealous of how he feels towards Madeline versus her, even though she's the real person. She is in reality what Madeline actually was. Madeline was just made up. Um, but she is jealous of how she feels. And that's why she's sort of surrounded by green. She's, she's envious. Um, so that's why I love the cinematography of this film. And I think it's an extremely intelligently put together film because I don't doubt for a minute, knowing the kind of filmmaker that Cooper or Cooper Hitchcock was that, Maybe not with the red. Maybe I'm reading too much into the red, but with the green surrounding her, I, I cannot for a second believe that, you know, this wasn't intentional to make her surrounded by bathed in green light at the moment where, you know, he's pleading with her to sort of change who she is. And she's realizing that he's never going to love her unless she becomes Madeline. 
Yeah, and that's uh, those are two of the scenes when I mentioned yesterday that Adam, when you go to 4K, definitely watch Vertigo on it because it looks. Uh, I say it's going to be incredible. So good, it looks so yeah. good. I watched it when I was watching it yesterday because I hadn't I hadn't watched my 4K yet. I'd seen the movie; it'd been years, but it just it's it's breathtaking how beautiful the film mm. looks. One that I forgot about was the almost animated sequence. It's like near the yeah. middle of the film. I think it's very interesting. It is animated. Right? It is animated, right? It looked animated to me. Um, where he's in the, like, what is that, the dreamscape part? Or like where he's kind of, you see the famous part where he almost looks like a puppet falling. Yeah. yeah I'm not sure like how they like, put it together. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, that, that's a great looking sequence anyway, but I'd actually kind of forgotten about like how animated it looked. And I was like, this is actually feels really ahead of its time to do things mm-hmm. like that. Like, you know, just, it, it's kind of a risky endeavor to do in a movie like that. Yeah. And you know, it could have contributed to the failure. Like we mentioned before, sometimes even a film, how good it is, if it's a bit too weird for most audiences, like you see what you saw, we saw it again with Blade Runner, you know, no matter how good the film is, if it doesn't really, if it has weird moments, tells me one space odyssey again, another example of iconic yeah. famous films that are, deemed masterpieces now just didn't resonate with audiences at the time and you know the dream sequence for sure could have alienated a lot of people who probably thought what the fuck is this you know why are we seeing this there was a debate whether or not they should show the death of the real madeline and they actually showed it two different ways from my understanding one one critic review got it with the flashback and one got it without and the one without was called the worst Hitchcock movie. And the one with it was called the best Hitchcock movie. And so they decided to leave it in. But originally the film wasn't going to flashback. The only reveal you were going to have was the letter that she ends up ripping up. Which we showed a flashback over when she's talking the letter. Right. That's when the flashback happens. So they were just going to have her write the letter and her explain it. Okay. Yeah. And they decided. I could see why that would be confusing. If there's not a visual cue there, I could see why it could confuse and annoy some some audiences um before before we move too much on past the cinematography the the thing that i do have to give credit where it's due here when i was in like college or something there was an introduction to jude law's character in road to perdition Mm -hmm. where the camera backs up and zooms in at the same time and i didn't know what it was and all i knew is it was the most amazing thing piece of cinematography i'd ever seen I later come to find out that it's called a dolly zoom, I believe. Yeah, and I dolly think zoom. this is the film that pioneered that technique, right? Yeah, I don't think it invented it, but it was as well popularized it. It was like the first sort of major film to to use the dolly zoom, and it's iconic right. ever since. You know, it's if you want to sort of exaggerate what you're seeing, you, you do a you do a dolly zoom. Yeah, and credit to Hitchcock. Like I remember, you first see it in like the first scene when he looks down and the cop ends up dead you almost wonder if he's going to end up overusing it. And I think a lot of directors would feel like I've got to use this as much as possible because I can do it. And it's mm. a cool effect. And really you only see it. I don't know, a handful of times throughout. The yeah. Like three or four times. Yeah. It's only really in the, like outside of the, the first scene, it's only really in the bell tower. Cause I don't think even during the next scene, after the opening scene where he's in Midge's apartment and he's sort of trying to climb up on the stools I don't even think That's it right. happens then. I think it just shows him looking down and freaking out a bit. Um, I'm pretty sure the only other times it's used is in the bell tower. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's a great restraint to not get really, like it feels fresh every time they finally show it again. Yeah. Yeah. 
So clear to see it's the greatest film ever made. I don't think we have any. I would like to hear what Chris thinks after the discussion. You know, and obviously, <laughs> if you don't like it, that's that, that's obviously fine. I'm just kind of curious now that you've talked about it, what you feel. Um, I need to watch it again. I want to give it some time and watch it again because I, you know, the the biggest complaint I had with the movie was that I just felt the runtime, right? Which is speaks more to like just raw enjoyment of the movie, not necessarily like a, like a logical appreciation of it. Mm-hmm. So I want to like, I want to give it some time and think about it. You know, I, Adam, something you said about you didn't really get this film or like it the first time through. Um, I'm, I'm okay intellectually being compared to you at 17. I'm, I'm good with that. Um, <laughs> I, I'd, I'd be happy to be as smart as you were at 17. Um, but I think, yeah, like I just need to, I'll give it some time and watch it again because it's possible that I was viewing this through the lens of trying to force it into like a romantic story or something between these two. Maybe that's why I felt the runtime a little bit. I don't know. I, I but I, you know, yeah, I, I certainly want to give it a shot. And, and I did mean to say this up front. Visually, this film is amazing. I, I get that. Like, I, I get the praise there for sure. Um, even on a DVD uh, or the whatever, I, I didn't think the transfer was that great on the channel. I don't know which uh, transfer they used. I thought it was okay. But even with that, I could tell some of the stunning cinematography. So that's about the best I can do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One thing I'm curious to see if you know. Um, you you're you're a fan of Les Diaboliques, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did did you know that the source material for this was also written by the same guys who wrote the source material for Diaboliques? I did not know that detail. Yeah, it's based on a book called D'entre les morts, uh, by the Balo Narzijac that duo of French crime writing guys, and they wrote the source material for Diaboliques. So not only do you have the visual and thematic and plot similarities between Clouseau and Hitchcock, but you have that to connect them as well. If you're looking for a bit more Ah, harder connection. Great. Uh, Well, I'd still like double league better as of today, but we'll see how time changes that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's, um, I I mean, I I kind of talked about that a minute ago, how much it's changed. One of the extras on my, um, blu-ray was talking about that too where because and they put it towards the film being lost but originally the film was not in the top 100 in afi for a long time and then in like 97 it jumped up to 64 and then by the time it gets to the newest list afi put out i think it was in like the top three or four and just how it's kept continuously jumped up over time and i think you guys mentioned on uh south uh Sight and sound, it's jumped up quite a bit as well. Yeah, because it wasn't really it wasn't really that high until it just went to number one in 2012. And it remains to be seen how it'll end up later this year when they do put out their list. And that's probably more down to its availability. Um, like you said, it was lost for a long time. So, you know, as more people get to see it, then you know, the critical consensus starts to move up. Like I have a funny feeling now in the 2022 sight and sound list, we're going to see jump ups for films like come and see and set and tango that didn't have good releases for the last few decades. 
that are now more easy to see. Um, so I could see like those kind of films jumping up uh, the list because it just seems to be a trend when films become more widely available. Like maybe maybe it'd be a bit too early, but there's that Iranian film that Quartier are going to be putting out at some point this year that Janice is, is mm, I'm looking forward to that. Chest yeah, of the Wind. Yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to it as well. It's been lost since like the 70s, apparently. 2022 is probably going to be too early for the show up, but if it's as good as everyone seems to say it is, you know, maybe in another 10 years, we could see that jump up purely on the basis that for previous lists, it hasn't been possible to appraise it because it hasn't been readily available. Yeah, I'll be interested yeah. to see where Vertigo lands. Uh, it, 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 it's almost crazy to think Vertigo was lost for so long. Like it wasn't really lost. Hitchcock's, I think, daughter owned it and it just didn't get a release. But it's it's kind of weird to even think about that. Like that'd be almost like Citizen Kane or The Godfather being unavailable for 30 plus years. It happens too this... much. And I'm gonna... Sorry, go ahead, Chris. No, 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 it's fine. It might be saying the same thing. No, well, we probably won't be. Uh, I was going to say, like, it does happen with, with famous films. I'm going to be talking about, in the next segment, in any other business, I'm going to be talking about a film that it currently doesn't really have a proper release or anything like that that's crazy that it doesn't when you consider the filmmaker and the quality of the film itself. Um, but it's, it seems to happen. Uh, but anyway, sorry, Chris, um, go ahead. No, it, uh, yeah, we're, we weren't going to say the same thing. <laughs> um I, I was just going to say, like, my, every single reel of the Monty Python TV show was almost recorded over because back in the day, BBC just didn't really, like, keep film. So, yeah. like, for every Monty Python that was saved, like, you know, there's this big question of, like, well, what else did the BBC record over just for the sake of saving, like, a few cents of not having to buy new film reels? Uh, well, I mean, to be, to be fair, it was expensive, more than a few cents. But, like, yeah, that's the whole preservation thing, why I'm such a big fan of what Agfa and Vinegar Syndrome are doing, even on even though people joke about them being like shitty films. It's true, but like for every film that's lost to time, like there's a Vertigo or a Night of the Hunter or one yeah. of these ones that what if it wasn't saved and what if we lost it? You know, like I don't know. No, it's a good point. It's a good point. So it's it's important to to and what I suppose probably the, the one of the positives about moving into a digital age that no films can ever really get lost anymore and i should delete the fucking file <laughs> that, that yeah. would happen um so it I almost happened to toy story too yeah i remember reading that that some someone nearly deleted all their work um, oh, before no. release which would have been crazy oh, wow. but uh like re- reality it's 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 because even even if someone does delete the original now. copy, you have cloud storage and then you have pirates you know yeah. so there is a positivity to piracy that you can't really lose a film once it's released because it's definitely been ripped a million times and spread across the web that way. So if there's any positive to piracy, it's their it's their um their commitment to film preservation. Looks like the guy who had the uh, unrated Friday Thirteenth Part Two footage was I think it was on a VHS tape that he had, and. He, Nobody could find it. And I was like, there are people who just have this stuff laying around. I mean, how many silent films do we hear? Oh, it was in a vault in this rich guy's house who wanted it at an auction. I have yeah, yeah, DVD. Yeah, yeah. I have a DVD box set of the of the the original and prequel Star Wars trilogy. And in my in my original trilogy DVD box sets that I've had for about twelve years, I have the original theatrical versions of the first three films. They were just included as a bonus feature. 
but like they've been buried since like George Lucas buried them Disney won't release them um, so but I have a copy of them so if the world ever needs the theat- original theatrical versions of the Star Wars movies I, I have Adam's like I'm retiring because I'm going to upcharge sell that, that sh- I'm going to sell that <laughs> shit <laughs> well, I hope they still okay, work I haven't yeah. tested them in about 10 years it's like <laughs> so we're setting the heading into the last part of our podcast which is always as any other business just uh, give us a chance to highlight something we've watched recently that that we've liked and want to give a shout out to um as, as i alluded in the previous section um just regarding you know films maybe being unavailable widely um i luckily enough found an online copy of the louis Bunel film from 1950 called Las Alvedados. Um, it's rated very, very highly. Um, it's very high up on the sight and sound list, if I remember correctly, because I've been trying to go through that kind of slowly over the last year or so. Um, but it has no Blu-ray release. There's no proper restoration of it. I don't know what the situation is with rights or anything like that, but I found a copy on YouTube and my God, this film is amazing. It's has all it's just everything in a film that i love um it's sort of it's basically about these bunch of street kids in mexico city um they kind of get bossed around by this older kid who's this pretty hardened criminal you know he does some pretty nasty stuff throughout the film and then a bunch of younger kids who are like 10 or 12 they kind of get roped into his schemes and how that affects them um but the, the film is is amazing like i'm not i I'm not the biggest Buenel guy. I've seen a few of his films that have ranged from either, yeah, that was pretty good to I didn't like that. You know, pretty hit and miss for me when I watched his films. Um, this jumps all the way up to being my favorite film from him. It's it's fantastic. You know, from the way it starts, it kind of seems like it would be like a neo-realist film, kind of almost like a like a precursor to the 400 blows mixed with you know, Rossellini or, um, you know, Vittorio De Sita, that, that, that kind of style. Um, but it's really classically shot, um, has a lot of, like, has some dream sequences, has some really great cinematography. It doesn't really have that documentarian viewpoint that neorealist films kind of have. It is really sort of classically filmed. Um, the performances are all very good by all pretty much um, from, from what I've, from what I've read, all very sort of uh, amateur, non-professional kind of actors, um, has a really good sort of message about, um, you know how you know you know, and Zach, you'll probably speak, you know, probably maybe resonate with this a bit more, you know, with your background, you know, dealing with sort of troubled kids and stuff, but like a lot of the stuff that happens to these kids in these films, are very much you know instigated by their parents and maybe their parents don't look after them. They don't show them love or affection and have to go and try and find attention elsewhere. Um, Mm. So, and and that's, that's a major sort of theme throughout this film, especially absent fathers is a huge theme in this film, whether they're physically absent, like they're just not mentioned, whether they've died, you know, one father is shown as being a drunkard, another kid's father abandons them at the start of the film. So, like absent fathers is a major, major thing in the film. And then, you know, the mothers that are shown are just either, either, either sort of silent in the background or shown as being, you know, they're, they're just working very hard just to get by. And, you know, they're 
very much annoyed and angry and show hatred towards their sons because they're showing delinquent behavior rather than trying to nurture them. Um, and, it, and it, you know, just ends up backfiring a lot of the time. So it's a short film. It's only just over an hour long. Um, I will, <laughs> unfortunately, I've just, I don't want to be spreading around weird links. So I, the listeners of the podcast, I will not share the link with you guys, but uh, Chris and Zach, the link is pinned in our discord. If, if you are interested in watching it, because it's not a great copy. It's not like it's, it's very grainy and stuff, but it's, it's watchable. Um, and, and I'd really recommend it. it's a fantastic film and I can only hope at one point it gets a proper restoration and release by somebody because it deserves to be seen by more people there's so 1950 Old Vidados came out I haven't actually seen it before although I've always wanted to because 1950 Variety Lights also came out mm-hmm. and I love this idea that Bunuel and Fellini kind of grew up together and were they had a very similar career trajectory too where you, you mentioned about Olvidados is very rooted in like realist kind of yeah. situations, right? And then they both ended their career in surrealism pretty heavily. Um, so I, I love Bunuel. I love, I have loved him. Uh, I love that you have seen that movie. I'm a little jealous you saw it before me, but there you go. <laughs> uh, thanks for the rec. I'll, I'll try to see it as fast as I can. Yeah. Cool. Who wants to go next? Um, I can go and do the about polar opposite, probably from artfulness. Um, recently, I decided it was like I think it was last Sunday. I wanted to just sit down and watch a few Nicolas Cage movies because I'm trying to go through and watch as many of those as I can before the end of the year. Um, I'm not going to go through all three, but the three I ended up watching was um, a movie called Primal, which came out in 2019. A movie called Looking Glass, which is real twin peaks feeling i mean it's hard to recommend it but you know it's a it's a pretty film to look at it's very lynchian um it's interesting to watch and the one i want to talk about is a movie called between worlds which came out in 2018 um and probably would have been the craziest film nick cage had made that year if mandy didn't come out so kind of the uh premise of this film is Nick Cage is this trucker whose wife and daughter were killed in a fire like years prior. And he goes into this convenience store and there's this woman who actually played Lola and run Lola run. Um, She's getting choked out in the convenience store bathroom by this guy. So he saves her. He like knocks the guy out, takes her and she's all pissed about it. And the reason it turns out she's pissed about it is because she's able to leave her body through, um, you know, I, I, if she's close to death, she can kind of go like uh, between worlds sort of idea. And her daughter was recently in a car, ac- a, a motorcycle accident. So she wants to go there so she can lead her daughter back to her own body and she can live. So Nick Cage goes to the hospital with her and does this for her, chokes her out so she can do this. Well, the, where it gets a little complicated is it turns out that Nick Cage's wife's ghost hangs around him. So when she goes to save her daughter, Nick Cage's wife ends up going inside the daughter's body. And it just gets so off, goes bonkers. (laughs) It is an insane movie. The whole movie is ridiculous. Um, I highly recommend it just because I I don't want to give out too much away. But, you know, when Nick Cage finds out his wife is there, keep in mind, he is like a 45-year-old man, or at least supposed to play that 45 or 50. And this girl is like 19 or 20. 
So they're having a sexual relationship because it's his wife. I love everything you just said. (laughs) Yeah, it it is basically a supernatural soap opera. Like, you would see this plot (laughs) in a soap opera. It's fantastic. I highly recommend it. Oh, that's great. Sounds fucking bananas. (laughs) Much like old Vedados. Oh, Oh, they're essentially interchangeable. (laughs) Same movie. Um, okay, well, I am going to keep us in the gutter a little bit here. Um, there, there, there's a couple different ways I could take this. I, I have been, I will say, shout out to this Warner Brothers box. So I've been going through uh, this, this Warner Brothers. They, they declared, I don't know when it was, 2010-ish. They declared to the world, these are our 100 best movies we want to represent us. They put them all in a box set. It's this behemoth set. And it's been sitting on my shelf as aspirational for years. So I'm finally going through it this year. I'm going to knock them all out. Uh, I'm five in and I was a little questionable getting started because the jazz singer was the first one, which is fine, but it's very questionable content and it's just uh, awkward watching now. Um, But I mean, like Cimarron in there, which is a Western, a feminist Western uh, the Grand Hotel, I just finished last night, which is this amazing movie. So, uh, you know, cre- credit where credit's due. There's a lot of good movies coming out of Warner Brothers Studios, and I'm, it's been fun kind of going through them. I'm having more fun than I thought. Uh, but I, what I want to spend a little time on is 2000 Maniacs. <laughs> so I, I don't know how many of, of y'all listening or, or Adam uh, have seen films from Herschel Gordon-Lewis. I, I've not yet been acquainted. Um, Zach, I'm assuming you've seen a few. Yeah, I, I've seen uh, quite a few. I haven't seen all of them, but I've seen that one, and I've seen uh, Wizard of Gore and a couple other ones. Um, he is... So he is one of these guys that I get the hype. Like, So Arrow put out this beautiful box set that looks like a cereal box about five years ago or so. And it's called the Gordon Lewis or H.G. Lewis Feast. And uh, now they've re-released it. We were talking about how they always re-release films. Uh, so they re-released it and it's, uh, it's standard edition now. But I'm going through this set. And he just really understands, I think, how to use no budget. So 2000 Maniacs was a big budget for him. He had $64,000 to make the movie. And he essentially went to a really small town in Florida for two weeks and shot this movie about, uh, uh, I guess, a centennial celebration. And what this little town was celebrating was the massacre of their town. And the reason they were having this party was to exact revenge on the, the northerners or the Yankees, as they call them. And they come in and they, they have this big party and celebration. It turns out they're cannibals. And it turns out there's another even bigger twist in the end, which kind of makes the movie even better. Um, but, you know, it's just schlocky, low-budget movie, like no two ways around it. But he does a lot with it. Like he really adds a lot of uh, suspense and tension, I think, for, for the film. He gets this incredible musician whose name is Charles Gore, which is just a great name. And they do this kind of like folky, kind of Southern folk style like i hate to use the word hillbilly kind of music but that's sort of that that vibe and 
it's really good music and it kind of drives the tone of the film. And I just think people should see it. If you're ever going to give H.G. Lewis a shot, I think start with 2000 Maniacs. I loved it. And uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I want to promote the movie. It's, it's really well made. Lewis has to be, in my opinion, probably the least, to use a common word in our Discord, least pretentious director in the world, just because yeah. of how aware he is of what he makes. And he never tries yeah. to pretend it's more than it is. Yeah. Like, but he's a talented guy. He just, he had a lot of talent and he did very well with what he wanted to do. You wanted, if you wanted a movie, a cannibalistic movie like that, he gave it to you. And bells and whistles and all. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm, I'm, ex- I'm super excited to get through the rest of the set. I've probably seen five of his going into it, but there's a bunch I haven't seen. So yeah, that, that's H.G. Uh, Lewis. Thumb, two thumbs up. <laughs> that wraps up this week's episode of They Live By Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. And you can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care.